So we are in Nehemiah chapter 6 this morning. Uh, If you need a Bible, they are on the aisles. You can grab one if you like to have a physical Bible in your hand. Uh, If you're not near an aisle, just ask somebody to send one down your way and those will come to you. We also put it on the screen. And uh, I personally highly recommend uh, the Bible app on all the, well, all the devices. It's on all of them by version. That's a great uh, full suite of Bible reading things, plans, and accountability and all that kind of thing, and it's also just a great Bible to have in your pocket. So there you go. Open up to Nehemiah chapter 6, starting in verse 15. We'll get to the text in a moment. Uh, What we're going to be talking about this morning is that the wall is finished. That's how the opening of this section goes. The wall is complete. It's done. It's over. Uh, For me as a, um, uh, honestly, as a follower of Jesus, I've never really studied the book of Nehemiah before. I mean, I've, I've read through it, going through the Bible in a year. Uh, when I was in Bible school and seminary, we studied it in Old Testament. It was part of the curriculum, but it kind of got a mention, you know. It's like Isaiah and Psalms and Genesis, those get all the glory. Nehemiah is just kind of an afterthought. And uh, so I've never really had time to, like, soak in the richness of the book of Nehemiah. And over the last few months we have been able to be in this book and it's been it's been so incredible for me personally just to to watch God work in me and to watch God work in this church through his scriptures I have absolutely loved it one of the things to kind of catch you guys up that's been so interesting is uh, a lot of times Nehemiah is viewed and even in in Bible school it's sort of like this is the place where the wall of Jerusalem gets rebuilt that's what Nehemiah is in the scriptures for it's a a time for us to see where and when Jerusalem gets rebuilt. And that's sort of true, but then you kind of come to the realization that the wall gets finished in Nehemiah chapter 6, and there's 13 chapters in the book of Nehemiah, so there's got to be something else to the story. Why does the book keep going? And that's the question that we get to answer this morning. What is it that is God's ultimate goal for even having the book of Nehemiah, other than just pure history? What is God trying to communicate to us through putting Nehemiah in his scriptures, authored by the Holy Spirit for all time, that we want to learn from this. And Nehemiah is doing more than building a wall. He's, excuse me. (coughs) I got halfway there. Christian, that cup, would you go get me a glass of water in there? That would be awesome. Thank you very much. Um, So, Nehemiah is an interesting story because it is a a, a time in Israel's history where they've been in captivity for a couple hundred years. They've been in captivity to two different major world empires. If you took a, a good history class, you have the Babylonian Empire, Nebuchadnezzar. These are key figures in world history. And the Babylonians came in and took over Israel and Judah and took the people captive. And Israel and Judah were not nations anymore. They were They were gone. The people were, were then captives. Think of like a concentration camp. Think of uh, Israel and Egypt. They were work slaves to the Babylonians. While they were in Babylon, the Persians came in and took over. So if you've ever seen movies about Leonidas or about kind of the Persian warriors, that's the army that came in and they are this major world force. Thank you, Christian. I appreciate it. They're this major world force, and they come in, and they dominate. They take over Babylon, crush Babylon, and are now the new kind of lords of the land, if you will. And in doing that, they inherit the Jewish people as slaves, as people who 
they have possession of. Now, the Persians were a little less concerned with keeping Israel at bay. They, weren't, uh, they were kind of generous to the Jewish people. And so one of the kings of Persia let uh, Ezra go back, let Zerubbabel go back, take groups of people back to Israel. But there were also these regional commanders that wouldn't let Israel reestablish itself as a people group. And so you have Jews living in Jerusalem and around Israel, but they were living as oppressed people with governors that would not let them reestablish life as the Jewish people. They really struggled to find their identity in that. So much so that when Nehemiah gets word about Jerusalem in Nehemiah chapter 1, they are described as people living in trouble and shame. We have people living in shame. And this breaks Nehemiah's heart, not because he's sentimental about Jerusalem and he really wants the wall built or he really wants a thriving city in his hometown. You know, he's, he's frustrated that all the stores are going out of business, so he starts a new business. That's not the motivation here at all. He looks at Jerusalem as a picture of God's people. And if we as God's people are not living as God's people, and we've deserved this, we lived unfaithfully, and God scattered us to the nations. But Nehemiah prays at the beginning of this book. He prays to God and he says, all right, you said that if we were unfaithful, you would scatter us. The subtext is, you did that. But you also said, remember you told your servant Moses that if we were faithful, you would gather us from the nations, you would put us into a land that you made for us, and you would make your name dwell there. Do you remember that, God? And again, the subtext is Nehemiah saying, so let's go do that. That's what we want. We want your name. We want to be your people. We want you to dwell among us. God, we want you to be represented to the nations. We do not want to be a a people who are living in trouble and shame. We want to be a people who demonstrate the name of God. That is Nehemiah's motivation for building the wall, and that's the reason the book continues. The wall is the picture, but the people are God's project. To establish his name among the people, he continues. So chapters 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 are about God reestablishing himself as the God of Israel and the people of Israel reestablishing themselves as God's chosen ones, God's people. And they come back to the scriptures. They come back to prayer. They come back to remembering all of the things that God has done and they return to operating as God's chosen people. That is the story of Nehemiah. A lot of that starts in what we're talking about here. Nehemiah has been there to accomplish the project. He's been building the wall. There's been all kinds of opposition. It's been a great story up to this moment, but we see in chapter 6, verse 15, it starts with, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul, in 52 days. So with that, let's read this whole text in Nehemiah chapter 6. We're going to go 15 through chapter 7, verse 5. And then we'll read the rest of it later on. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, 
because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah, and the son of Jehohanan, had taken the daughter of Meshullam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Make sure you remember that family tree. You'll need to know that for the quiz. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my works to him, and Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Now, just so you know, that section is Nehemiah talking about they had built the wall and all of these governors that had been forcing opposition on them, trying to undercut the work of Nehemiah, they're still at it. They're still frustrated that Jerusalem is rebuilt and that the people of God are reestablishing an identity. So Nehemiah is continuing that storyline, just giving you a heads up that, yes, they're still frustrated and there's still a lot of work happening outside to try and crush what's going on inside, but they're also very afraid. Now, when the wall had been built, I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed. I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors, appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first and I found it, I found written in it and we will pause there at the colon. Um, There are a couple of things that we need to identify early on in this. Why is this being written? What is it that God wants to say to us? And the first thing that we see is we see God at work in his faithful people and his power is on display. Okay, there's an interesting statement that Nehemiah says the wall was finished and the nations around them were afraid and they fell greatly in their own esteem. Now, last week we talked about how if you have Jerusalem representing a football team, it's Park College. If you have all of these other nations representing a football team, they are University of Alabama, right? So the, the competition is maybe on a different level. You have dominance and you have people that are not quite at that level. Israel historically didn't really have that much of an army. They're a small nation for 2,000 years, they were a nation that had no business being in business. If you look at where Israel exists physically on a map, you see that over the last couple thousand years, uh, every major world empire, except for the, the Chinese empires, every major world empire that's occupied space in Asia and Europe has taken, I'm sorry, not Asia, well, Asia Minor, Europe, Africa, has taken over Israel. These people have been embattled for their entire history. Their land is at the center of every major world conflict that's gone on in this world history, and they are just this little ping pong ball that gets bounced around from captivity to captivity, and they find themselves not really having strength of their own. So why are these nations afraid when a wall gets built in Jerusalem? And it says that what they saw is that God was with them. They perceived that what was happening is the same thing that had happened throughout history. And this is where nations were on notice, is that all through history, you have Israel, this tiny nation that any one of those major world powers could have crushed 
theoretically at any moment, yet God continued to sustain them and even overcome these incredibly powerful enemies time and time again. Those other nations knew Israel's story. Those other nations knew that they had an ace up their sleeve. They had God on their side. And what they'd seen in recent history is for the last couple hundred years, God had abandoned them. They were a people in captivity. God wasn't with them. He's not overcoming the Babylonians. He's not overcoming the Persians. God is not battling for them. And so they had nothing to be afraid of. But now, all of a sudden, you've got Nehemiah who has King Artaxerxes' blessing, his military support going to and from Persia, his full arsenal of uh, the forest that he has, build your gates with my forest, cast your your bronze with, with all that I have, it is yours, Nehemiah. And they're like, God is with them again, and that's what they are afraid of. Here's the thing that we take from this. As we walk in faithfulness, something happens and the world notices that God is with us. You see it throughout the scriptures. You see uh, moments like when the apostles came into a village and start preaching the gospel and demonstrating it with signs and wonders. There's a magician there who had power. He had access to the dark arts. He had the ability to do magic and spells and things of that nature. And he comes in and sees the apostles doing things that were greater than anything he had ever been able to do. And he has to ask the question, where do they get their power? Because it's more than what I have. And these nations are watching Nehemiah. And it says they fell greatly in their own esteem. What happened is they saw their own power and ability and it was diminished in comparison to what was going on in Jerusalem. The work that had been done, the momentum that they had, the power that God had demonstrated showed that God is with them and that causes them to be afraid. A couple of weeks ago, I got to preach to a church in South Africa and I used the passage 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 11 that talks about Paul's thorn in the flesh. He talks about asking God to remove this thorn from my side. Three times I asked the Lord, take this thorn from me. And each time Jesus responded to Paul and said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. That was Jesus's reply. So Paul says, God, will you heal me? And Jesus says, no, because I'm better seen in your weakness than I am in your strength. And so then Paul says, well, give me more weakness then, because I want you more than I want to be healthy. It's incredible. But one of the powerful things in that is that we see God at work in weakness. We see God shine powerfully through tiny nations. We see God's glory on display in unexpected ways and in unexpected places. And here you have Paul saying, I would love to be healthy. And his motivation clearly is to serve the Lord. He doesn't want to just, you know, he's not out there to necessarily make a name for himself. But Jesus says to him, when you're healthy, you get more glory. When you're sick and you do the same things and more, people look at you and they see, they see me. And they give God the glory in those moments. When we walk in faithfulness, 
When we see God at work in us and God at work through us, what happens is the world notices what is happening and they praise God because it is clearly not something that just comes from you or just comes from me. It's a powerful statement in our world and we see it in Nehemiah. As we kind of move into the next section, there's a verse in uh, Titus chapter 1, verse 5. Uh, Titus is a letter from Paul to uh, Titus, one of his young kind of apprentices. He's been working with him for some years, and he actually gives him the opportunity to apprentice as an apostle, to oversee a number of churches in the area of Crete. If you've ever looked in the Mediterranean Sea, there's a little island kind of middle of the Mediterranean off the coast of Italy called Crete. There were some churches that were set up there that had been planted there, and Paul sends Titus to that place, and he says this, He says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So Titus, your job from Paul, kind of the old guy that's not necessarily able to be there, whether he's in prison or old age or whatever the case, he says, I need you to go into these places and to start putting what remains into order. One thing that we see in God's story is we see movement from rescue chaos, disorder, pain, suffering, struggle. We see God come into that and do powerful and amazing things to pull people out of that. And then God moves them towards this sense of order and structure to how they're supposed to live out their lives as God's people. Now, I gotta be honest, personality-wise, I don't always love that. I'm kind of a chaotic guy. If you've ever tried to plan a coffee with me or get lunch with me, uh, I don't love a calendar. Email's not my thing. It's, It's sometimes hard to really wrap my head around organization personally. That's kind of how I lead the church sometimes. And so if you've ever felt like Anthem's a pretty disorganized place, I'm sure that's an expression of my personality, though we are trying to move away from that. Personally, I'm trying to learn things from what I'm preaching to you. That's hopefully that would be every preacher would actually learn something that he's communicating. I, I do struggle with this. I, like, I liked when we planted Anthem Church. I liked the, uh, the unpredictability of it. I liked that we had no money in the bank. I liked that we didn't have a building. We didn't have a facility. We had a, our stuff in a trailer. Sometimes the truck worked that was supposed to tow the trailer. Sometimes it didn't. Sometimes we would get calls on a Thursday from the place that we were supposed to be meeting on Sunday and said, oh yeah, you can't have it. Somebody else is using it and we'd have to figure out where to meet. I loved those things. I loved the chaos of the church plant and it's been a little bit of a growing experience for me to move into a different kind of a church life. And it may be your experience where you struggle with that a little bit. Why do we have so much organization? Why do we have so much structure? As a culture, sometimes we look at Acts chapter 2 and think, that's it, that's the early church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to prayer, and to fellowship. Nobody had need because everybody was selling everything and piling the money into the middle, and you just kind of gave and grabbed and gave and grabbed whatever you need, and it's this. They met in the temple, and they went house to house, and it's this beautiful chaos as everybody comes to faith in Jesus, and they're trying to sort things out. We love Acts chapter 2, but sometimes we struggle with Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 15, Acts chapter 20, 1 Timothy 2, Titus chapter 1, we struggle with the church being brought into order and structure. Acts chapter 6 is deacons. Acts chapter 15 is a council. (laughs) 
Acts chapter 20 is elders. And it's hard for us because we feel like, doesn't the church kind of lose its momentum when all of those structure things start to happen? And we actually look at the way that God works and we say, God is such a rescuer and a savior. He pulls us out of these grimy, broken situations. Look what he does with Israel. Pulls them out of Egypt. He pulls them out of Persia. He does all of these incredible things to rescue them out of the chaos and the brokenness. But every single time, God starts to move them towards life together as a community that involves a sense of order and structure to what they're doing. God rescues Israel out of Egypt. Moses in the desert. There are nomadic people wandering. They get to Mount Sinai and God gives them the law and Moses the ability to enforce the law. Then they wander a little bit more and there are issues in the people and God appoints Moses as judge to judge the the things of the people. And then Jethro, his father-in-law, comes in and says, why are you judging all these people? Get help. Leaders, put them in place over every tribe so that every tribal leader can judge their people and you help the tribal leaders. And he brings a sense of order and structure to the people of Israel. And it happens at every step in Israel's history and it continues to happen in the church. Jesus says this. He says, Peter, you are my rock and on this rock I will build my church. When he's talking about Peter professing Jesus as the Messiah and it's an incredible moment where Jesus talks about the fact that he's building something. He's not creating this chaotic environment where every Christian is just a solo Christian and their whole job is to just live you and God and do your thing and then go on mission and tell other people about it and then move on to the next thing and on and on and on. He actually says, I am building my church, my people. The people that I save are assembling Do you know what the word church means? Ecclesia. It means an assembly, a gathering of the people of God. And there's a call to a togetherness that the scriptures take us into. Nehemiah goes in, builds this wall, and then he starts to organize things. Now when the wall had been built, this is chapter 7, verse 1, I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers and singers and the Levites had been appointed. Once the doors were up, we've got a new project. That's establishing ourselves as the people of God. So he's got the priesthood, the Levites. He's got the the Josh Lewises and the Shannon Birches. He's got the worship leaders, the singers. He puts them into place. He's got the gatekeepers, the people who open and close the gates and make sure that the place is both safe and also they are involved in commerce. He lays down governing. He puts his brother, Hananiah, in charge over all of Jerusalem and says, you are going to oversee this. Contrary to the rumors from last week that Nehemiah was setting up a kingdom, Nehemiah hands governance over to his brother and says, you, godly man, you are going to run this city. And he gives him a job. He makes rules. He says, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. That has to do with trade. People would go out into the countryside and fill up their wagons or their carts or whatever with their inventory, all kinds of things that they make, that they grow, that they do. They would bring it into the city, to the marketplace. They would do commerce with each other. The gates being open is shop is open. The gates being closed is we're done. Go home, get some rest, fill up for tomorrow. That's what Nehemiah is putting into practice. Market opens at 11, 
closes at four. That's it. We're done. We have, a, we have a set work day. This is not everybody does what they want whenever they want. The gates are open. There's no self-control. Anybody can come in and sell at any time. There's structure to being the people of God. There's a rhythm to our life together, and Nehemiah sets that rhythm for the people. He's putting what remains into order. He's building the people of God into a community that serves each other where there's understanding and encouragement and life together. Nehemiah is not building a wall anymore. He's helping establish a people as God's people. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. We're talking about divine inspiration at the moment. Sometimes you hear somebody stand up on a stage and say, I feel like God is calling me into North Korea to preach the gospel. And we've heard those kinds of things. I have family members that are in a seven-year process of trying to build a business that will get them into North Korea so they can preach the gospel. Those are incredible, powerful, beautiful things. And we love those stories, and they are critical for the church moving into new places, new ground, doing new work. But we don't really think of divine inspiration like what Nehemiah just says. And God put it in my heart. God called me to assemble the nobles, to look at the genealogy, to organize the people of Israel by tribe, to make sure that everybody knows who everybody is, who they belong to, what they're responsible for, how they contribute. Everybody has to know this so that we can be a community together. In the same way that God called Nehemiah to do this great and powerful thing of moving back to Jerusalem, rebuilding the wall, establishing Jerusalem as a city, God is just as powerfully and passionately calling him to build the people into a community. Sometimes it's hard for us to wrap our heads around that as being true calling, something significant for the kingdom of God. But this is it. Right here, right now, God is building his people and that is part of the calling that he puts on us as his people. We'll talk about that more as we get into this. So what does Nehemiah do with that? He talks about who is there. Who do we have? Where do they come from? And what are they contributing? And I'm going to go in and I'm about to read a list of names and you're probably going to wonder about three or four names into this. Seriously, we're going to read them all? That's what's going to go through your head because it'll take us a good five to eight minutes to get through the whole list. And yes, we're going to read them all, every single one. I'm going to butcher the Hebrew. It's all right. I'm trying. But there's a reason that we're going through every single one of these names. And I want you to understand very clearly why these names are important. This is us. This is who we are. We're not just nameless, faceless congregations in God's eyes. We are not simply uh, the body of Christ, two billion strong throughout planet earth. We are known by God. We have a role in his community. And each and every one of us is a part of God's story. And God is taking this moment in Nehemiah to make sure that we understand that that is a critical piece of building God's community is that we are his people known by our shepherd and given to the community to be contributors in what God is building. These were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. 
So Nehemiah is saying, this is the group of people that came in the first return from exile that Zerubbabel led. They came with Zerubbabel, Yeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Raamiah, Nahamani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispareth, Bigvi, Nahum, and Baana. The number of men of the people of Israel. Uh, if you're pregnant, start working on which names you want to pick for your baby, okay? Here we go. The sons of Parosh, 2,172. The sons of Shephatiah, 372. The sons of Arah, 652. The sons of Pahath Moab, namely the sons of Yeshua and Joab, 2,818. The sons of Elam, 1,254. The sons of Zatu, 845. The sons of Zakai, 760. The sons of Benui, 648. The sons of Babai, 628. The sons of Asgad, 2,322. The sons of Adonikam, 667. The sons of Bigvi, 2,067. The sons of Aden, 665. The sons of Ader, namely of Hezekiah, 98. The sons of Hashem, 328. The sons of Bazai, 324. The sons of Hareph, 112. The sons of Gibeon, 95. The men of Bethlehem and Netophah, 188. The men of Anatoth, 128. The men of Beth Asmaveth, 42. The men of Kiriath Jerem, Kephirah, and Biroth, 743. The men of Ramah and Geba, 621. The men of Michmas, 122. The men of Bethel and Ai, 123. The men of the other Nebo, 52. The sons of the other Elam, 1,254. The sons of Harim, 320. The sons of Jericho, 345. The sons of Lon, Hadid, Lod, Hadid, and Ono, 721. The sons of Sena'ah, 3,930, biggest family in Israel. The priests, the sons of Jediah, namely the house of Yeshua, 973. The sons of Emir, 1,052. The sons of Pashur, 1,247. The sons of Hiram, 1,017. The Levites, the sons of Yeshua, namely of Kadmiel, the sons of Hodeba, 74. The singers, the sons of Josh Lewis, 148. <laughs> the gatekeepers, the son, uh, Asaph, I'll mention Asaph, I don't want to skip over him. Read the Psalms, he wrote like a quarter of the Psalms. The, the gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Ater, the sons of Talman, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hatita, the sons of Shobai, 138. The temple servants, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hasufa, the sons of Taboeth, the sons of Kiras, the sons of Sia, the sons of Padon, the sons of Lebanon, the sons of Hagabah, of Shalmai, of Hanan, of Gedel, of Gehar, of Rei, of Rezin, of Nakoda, of Gezaam, of Uzzah, of Paseah, of Basai, of Meunim, of Nefu, Shesim, of Bakbuk, of Hakafa, of Harher, of Basleth, of Mahida, of Harsha, of Barkas, of Sisera, of Temah, of Neziah, of Hatifa, the sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Sophereth, the sons of Perida, the sons of Jaala, the sons of Darkan, the sons of Gedel, the sons of Shephatiah, the sons of Hatil, the sons of Pokereth, Hazabaim, the sons of Ammon. The temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. 
The following were those who came up from Tel Malah, Tel Harsha, Cherub, Adon, and Emir. But they could not prove their father's houses nor their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. The sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nekoda, 642. Also of the priests, the sons of Hobiah, the sons of Hakaz, the sons of Barzilla, who had taken a wife of the daughters of Barzilla, the Gileadite, and was called by their name. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but it was not found there, so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until a priest with Urim and Thummim should arise. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 245 singers, male and female. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720. Now some of the heads of fathers' houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury a thousand derricks of gold, 50 basins, 30 priests' garments, and 500 minas of silver. And some of the heads of fathers' houses gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 derricks of gold and 2,200 minas of silver. And what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 minas of silver, and 67 priests' garments. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. <laughs> So here's where we're going to wrap this up. As we think about what our role is as individual followers of Jesus, think about what our calling is, what God has invited us into, what this tribe, this family of God that God has given to us is all about. It's important for us to see what God is asking of us. See, part of our story as Americans is, and maybe it's, maybe it's broader, maybe it's more of the world than just us, is we're kind of designed to think of ourselves as the center of the universe, and everybody else kind of revolves around us. If you've ever had relational conflict, it's usually because two people who see themselves as the center of the universe uh, are butting heads, and one has to win over the other, typically. Growing up, uh, it's just kind of embedded in our culture. When I was growing up, I really wanted desperately to have asthma desperately wanted to have asthma because Mike, uh, Mikey Ingunis had an inhaler and I just thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. I wanted to be Mikey from the Goonies. I wanted the inhaler. And I had this picture in my head that if you want to be the hero of the story, you've got to have some fatal flaw and that was it. That was my, and then he got to throw it away dramatically at the end. It was awesome. That's part of our story as people. And even when we read through the scriptures, I, I cannot tell you how many times I hear from people, I have a boring testimony. You know, my parents love Jesus, and they taught me to love Jesus, and so I love Jesus. Nothing exciting happened. I once had a kid in a youth group that said, you know, it's been a great run, but I, I, honestly, I'm, I'm thinking about going into drugs so that God can rescue me out of it. kind of weird to think about what we have in our heads as a success story in the kingdom of God. What we believe is good and what God is calling us into. 
And what we see from Nehemiah, what we see from the people of God throughout, what we see from God calling things to order, is that we see God calling us towards a life of humble, faithful service to our king. That's the life that we're called into. Look at some of the, the things that define people who love and follow Jesus. They're meek. They're godly. They're faithful. They're diligent. They're humble. They're unified. They're submissive. They are obedient. They're worshipers who worship the creator and not the created. Everything about the story of God drives us towards humility. You are not the story, but God is. But then God looks at you and says, okay, now I'm going to make you one of my stories. It's this powerful relationship where we exalt the king, period. Here's a little kind of a heart check, just something to process through and think about is, are you genuinely okay, genuinely okay, if your service, your work, your your faithful labor in the kingdom of God goes totally unrecognized until eternity? If nobody ever thanks you, nobody ever comes to you, nobody ever says good job, nobody ever recognizes you, you never get mentioned from the stage, you never get published in the church bulletin. We don't have a church bulletin. You never get put on the website or on the church's Instagram. Maybe that's a little bit more relevant. You don't get the credit. Are you still okay faithfully and humbly and diligently serving the Lord? Is it okay? to be able to hand everything up to the Lord and say, it's yours, it's not mine. This belongs to you. This is your story that I get to contribute to. As we think about what God is doing in this, in the book of Nehemiah, but also in our lives, he's driving us towards a life of serving one another, driving us towards humility, driving us towards unity. If you just go in kind of the the slipstream of our culture, it will lead you to chaos and drama, all right? Just think about every reality show. Think about everything that the the world is trying to communicate. Drama is better. Drama produces something that people want to see and be a part of. There's a a pastor that got asked to be on a reality show. I think he actually did it. I don't even know what channel it's on or whatever. But uh, he was reflecting on his blog on what the producers had asked of him. And they started filming this show. And then they actually stopped filming because him and his wife were getting along. And they were just living faithfully and humbly and leading a church. And what they had in their minds was not what was being portrayed. And so they actually asked them to spice it up a little bit. Uh, reality shows, like the, all the Housewives ones, they get bonuses for the more drama they create. So their, their paycheck is tied to the amount of drama that they create. So these gals are trying to create more drama. And as a world, we just kind of step right into that. Moving towards humility, moving towards unity, moving towards a simple, faithful, diligent walk with Jesus is not what the world is trying to sell us but it is very much what Jesus calls us into. This is not to say that there's no such thing as greatness in the kingdom of God or powerful testimonies, 
But most of the people who are trying to create a powerful testimony are missing the point. The people who we hear about over and over again throughout history are the people who have said yes to humbly serving their king. And for whatever reason, God puts them on display at different times, usually after they're dead. So I want to invite you. And I I say that not assuming that you're not already walking in this. Many of you have already made the decision to just walk faithfully, but I also want you to recognize that this is good, that this is what you are called into, to be a faithful follower of Jesus who seeks unity in the family of God, and God is on greater display when we walk in humble, diligent, faithful obedience to our King, and that translates to unity in the body of Christ. That's a good thing. It's a good thing if we as a church grow in that, grow in our love for each other, grow to stir each other more, grow to hold each other more accountable, grow to life together, increasing in how we love one another. That is a good thing. It's okay if we like doing life together and love serving our king together and love striving for unity together. In fact, it is a God thing for us to walk in that. My call, my invitation to each and every one of us is to be ready for what God has for us. One thing that I've learned in these last couple years is that the chaos and disorder of our church plant was beautiful and I loved it and it fit my personality and it was awesome, but that is not the life that God has called us into perpetually. Now, we keep planting churches because that kind of stokes my fire and there's just tons of chaos. We've got a church getting planted this morning, uh, Restored LA. We'll pray for them in a little while. Uh, it's happening. And all, the, all the fun stuff. Does the trailer actually show up at the right place at the right time? I love those things. But God is driving us towards an opportunity to reflect him in greater measure. God is not a God of chaos and disorder and unpredictability. God is a God of order who is unchangeable, who is the beginning and the end. He is over all and through all and in all, and in that, we get to depend on him. He is steadfast, immovable, unshakable, and we stand confidently on a God who walks with us through this life. There are going to be moments, we talked about it last week, moments where storms hit, moments where things come, and what did Jesus talk about? The man who builds his house on the rock, when the storms hit, he's not shaken. What do you think God wants for you based on that parable alone? And I didn't preach on that parable, but if you've heard that, what do you think God wants for you based on that parable alone? Does he want you living a life of total disorder and chaos, or does he want you to build a real foundation on the word of God, on the person of Jesus Christ that can be built on for his glory? That's what he's calling you into. This is the life that you are invited to live, and it's a good life. This is a hard message for me to preach because I love, I love, it's my passion to call people to their God's story, to what is it that God is inviting you to do. I love those things. This is not contradictory to that. God is calling us all into this life of faithful, humble service. There will be moments where some of us step out to do life on mission, to break ground in the new uh, untouched places. There will be moments where we call teams to go into 
foreign territory to plant churches and do hard new work like that. That's not contradictory to us growing in faithfulness. This actually produces more of that. This actually gives us more opportunity to send people to the edges as when we walk in faithful obedience to our God and our King. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for this. And this, Lord, I want us to, to know and to need what you are doing in us. Before we continue with that prayer, let me dispel any thoughts that the life that God is calling us into is boring or tame. It's harder to pursue unity than it is to be disunified, chaotic, and dramatic. It's harder to walk in humility than it is to see yourself as the center of the universe. It's harder to walk in submission than it is to think that you're the God of your own world. It's harder to live the life that God has called us into and it requires passionate and faithful pursuit of God and God alone. God is making us into something new, something that can live a unified life, something that can walk as a community of God's people. Before this, we could not do that. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were destined destined for the chaos of the old way. But God is restoring in us his image, his character, and he's taking us to the place that he calls us to, to be like him. So with every ounce of passion and love and commitment and diligence and ambition, we pursue the heart of God, which drives us to humility and to unity. Jesus, that's what we want. We want you, more of you. Lead us to a place where we are worshipers of the one true God. We love you and we praise you in your name. Amen.